As the ushers come to take the offering this morning, let me remind you of a couple things before we dive into our new series on the life of David. Uh, One, training arenas have started this week. So week one is this week. I hope you're planning on taking advantage of one next service hour. I I almost wasn't here. I almost skipped because I wanted to go the one on God and my emotions. See if I can figure a few things out in here. So, but I decided to show up. Whether you like that or not, I'm here. All right. So, uh, but there's lots of good ones. There's one on hospitality and evangelism that Ryan Keith's teaching right now. I thought about skipping for that one as well. So there's just lots of good stuff. Hope you'll take advantage of one of those. Also wanted to remind you, uh, we are nearing the most important day of the year, which is Easter Sunday. It is coming. And I hope you know that Easter is not just a time where we uh, make arrangements for brunch and get the family together. Right, But Easter is the day we celebrate our risen king. We're reminded that life has meaning and purpose and joy and everything's gonna be okay because our king is risen from the grave. He is not dead. And so I wanna remind you of our Easter services. Uh, we are gonna have a Good Friday service on Friday, Good Friday at 7 p.m. So that is there. We'll gather and think on the cross of Jesus and we will mourn through the weekend and then we'll gather together on Easter Sunday. And our times are gonna be eight and 9.30 and 11 o'clock. So you can just kind of think through that. We're gonna have four services this year. Normally we've had three at those hours. Our fourth service will be a venue service in this space right down the hall where our students usually meet. We'll have live worship in there. The sermon will be broadcast in there on on the screen. Uh, But we wanna let you know that that's available to you as well. We'll have some good stuff in there. Uh, And so those will be our four different services happening this Easter. We're excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you. Yes, church? Fantastic. So you can just kind of be thinking now about where God is, where you're gonna come and worship with us. So we wanted to make sure that you were aware of that. Let me pray and let's dive into God's word together. Lord Jesus, we are so thrilled to gather in your name this morning and we've sung, a mighty fortress is our God. How good that is. What a reminder of the truth of Psalm 46, thank you. Thank you for gathering us in your name and your declaration over us that you are a mighty fortress that the enemy cannot shake. That you are the stream that makes the city of God happy, Jesus. You are the stream of life, of living water that enters into the city of God where the people of God dwell and make it happy. Because you give us refreshment, you make us new, And so we've gathered in your name here today. And so I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word, that you would help your people now to receive your word. Holy Spirit, come and teach us and instruct us. And we pray for those who are here with us who are examining faith, maybe skeptical about your claims, Jesus, that you would help us to help them process that today. Just help us to make your word plain so that they might have more to think through and that they would know what we believe, which is the truth of your word, which is that you've pursued each one of us. None of us was wise in our own estimation. None of us figured out this thing called the gospel, but you, you came and you won us through your goodness and your love and your mercy, and we've come to see that there's nothing better than you. And so you have our lives, they're yours. Help us to have every intention now as we receive your word, not just to receive it and then walk out and forget what we've heard, but to receive it and walk out and apply the truth of your word to our lives, to make every effort to do that in yieldedness to the spirit so that you might be honored and glorified and that we wouldn't be double-minded people, but we'd be single-minded people set upon your purposes for us, given to you completely and unabashedly. Thank you for your presence here among us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Amen. Well, I alluded to it as I was making announcements. We are beginning a new series today. If you were with us the last seven weeks prior to this, we were talking about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and who He is and what He does. And now what I'd like to do is take us back into the Old Testament, and we're going to work through the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and just a touch into 1 Kings, and we're going to do that by examining the life of David. Now, many of you may be familiar with David. He is the second king of Israel, uh, right after Saul, the first king of Israel. And we'll do a little bit of history, but what I want to do is go through these books of the Bible by looking at the, the most important moments in the life of David to, to kind of identify what was happening in these moments. How did David respond to it? Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. Uh, and what is it about his life that we learn about the kind of king that God chooses? God chose David to be king and through him we learn a lot about the kind of king that God chooses. Now when you hear king, I don't want you to just think like Great Britain, right, the UK. I want you to think a person given authority by God. So in this scenario, that's King David. He is the king over a group of people. It's both a, uh, a, it's a spiritual task in the Old Testament, but it's also a political task. You and I may not have uh, political leadership in any kind of environment. We're not kings and queens per se, but we are people given authority somewhere, whether it's in your home, in your neighborhood, in your place of work. My guess is, you exercise authority, influence somewhere. And so when we talk about the kind of king God chooses, I want you to be able to see that this is really applicable to you in terms of how you're going to exercise leadership. And we're gonna learn some things from these high point and sometimes low point moments in the life of David. If you've never done this exercise, we just got finished doing it with our life group and I would highly recommend it. It's what we call a life map exercise. And if you've never done it, it's really, it's challenging, but it's really good and you could do this with your life group or you could do it with a close group of friends. If you walk back through your life and identify the five most spiritually impactful moments, just think about that for a moment. If you had to go back through your life and say, what are the most impactful moments of my life? What are the things that maybe at the time I didn't know it was going to be spiritually impactful, but I'm 20 years removed from it and I look back now and I see that shaped me in a way I could have never recognized. And it may be something really simple, something somebody said to you one time in second grade, right? It could be something really, really significant. There was a disruption in family life that was really, really hard and you were trying to navigate that and figure out how to walk through it. And those things shape us. They shape the way we think about God and his love and who he is, right? Some of you are thinking of moments right now, right? I've lost you for the rest of the sermon because now you're, you're doing your life map in your head it's a great exercise, and here's why. Because it forces you to ask, what was the spiritual impact of that moment? And how often do we not ask that? We just move through moments of life, and we never recognize, whoa, that, that caused me to think this about God, or it caused me to, caused me to move off in this trajectory. Maybe, maybe I moved sort of you know, out of community, away from people who love me as a result of this. Or maybe I doubted God's love. Or maybe this moment really affirmed to me God's provision, that he was there for me and always would be there for me. And it's one of those moments I always look back to and remember that God has put a signpost in my life. I mean, a stake in the ground. When, when he did that, he sort of once and forever sealed the truth for me that he'll never leave me, never forsake me. Those kinds of recountings in our life are really, really helpful. We're gonna try and look at David's life 
in that kind of a way. We're not gonna hit every moment of David's life, but we're gonna hit some that were really, really impactful. They're the ones the scriptures choose to preserve for us. Not every moment the scriptures preserve for us of David's life are we gonna look at, but we're gonna look at some really significant ones. And hopefully we'll find them useful. Now, in order to do that well, in order to look at David and into the Old Testament well, we have to do a little bit of preliminary work in understanding how to rightly interpret certain types of scripture. So if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read through, if you've not, let me encourage you, get like a Bible reading plan and just start reading through the Bible. Bible in a year is often a good thing to do. Maybe you can make that a goal from like today until next year this time to say, I'm gonna gonna read through the Bible because the Bible is filled, it's one story, but it's filled with all different kinds of genres of literature. So you get things like letters where Paul is writing to Timothy, you know, a friend and a beloved brother and he's writing something to him and it's pretty linear, right? You read through that and you go, oh, he's, he's pretty much just making a point like I would write a letter. Seems pretty familiar. But then you get poetry, right? The Psalms are poems and songs. You get stuff like Revelation, which if you read Revelation, it's weird, right? It's visions and, and all kinds of interesting things going on. You also have moments of history that are recorded in the Bible. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and the beginning of 1 Kings that we're gonna look at, those are history. They're the history of the nation of Israel and Judah, once they, these two nations who were one, divided and became two. And so you see in these historical narratives that essentially we're getting a recounting of history. But as we look in these, as we look at this recounting of history, we're gonna see more than just history. And so there's a couple things that we need to know to sort of understand how we're gonna look at David each time. And I wanna give you these three things, okay? The first thing that we're gonna do each week when we look at a story from the life of David is we're gonna see that David is an example for us. That's the first thing that we'll notice. David serves as an example of the kind of king that God chooses. And it's gonna be really encouraging, I hope to you, that David is far from perfect. And when we recognize that, like, that God can choose David, we're also recognizing, hey, perhaps God could choose me. And as we see David, we recognize a flawed man, but who also represents a good example, and sometimes an example of what not to do at moments. But each week we'll see that David is an example for us. That's the first way we'll look at the text. Yes, everybody with me? Fantastic, that's number one. The second way we'll look at the text is that we will remember, and this will just sort of be running in the background, it'll be the knowledge in the background of our minds, is we recognize that because the Bible's one story, the story of David fits within that one story. It, it, it occupies a specific part of what we call God's big narrative of redemption. That God is telling the story from beginning, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, about how he's gonna redeem a people for himself, how he's gonna save people, how he's gonna rescue them ultimately. And the book of Revelation is a great ending to that because, little spoiler alert, our king wins, all right? And we're moving through that story. And as we do, here's the point in the story we've come to when we look at David. We've come to a point where the people of Israel have requested a king in spite of the fact that God has said, I am supposed to be your only king. And so every time we look at the book of 1 Kings or 2 Kings or we look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and what God is doing, we're gonna see that every earthly king fails. Every single one, even the best one. And David is the best one. Even the best earthly king fails. And so the background, what should be running through the back of our minds every time we read this portion of scripture is that we should have in the back of our heads the prevailing message at this point in God's big story is God is really supposed to be my only king. And every time I look to any other king, it's gonna fail me. Anytime I look to to give authority in my life over to some king that's not God, that's not Jesus, 
that king, that leader will ultimately fail me. And so what we're gonna see as we go through is that that provides a launching pad for us because that's where we are in the historical narrative that Israel has said we want Saul and then Saul fails and then David is picked specifically by God in a way that no other king is picked by God. Every other king is either inherits the throne through uh, heredity or inherits the throne through power, through fighting someone else to get it. Saul is anointed by God and chosen by him. And David is anointed by God and chosen by him. And every other king then inherits the throne in a, in a kind of more just, I'm the son of the previous king, or I overthrew the son of the previous king, and so I took over. So you with me on that's where the kind of the narrative is? So that's the second thing we see every time we look at this is we remember that we're not supposed to always go, oh, this is just all about David's example. At, at brass tacks, bottom line, we are to always remember that every earthly king fails us. That's the point of the narrative that we're at. Now the third thing, the third thing that we're going to see is a little bit trickier, and it's what we call typology, okay? Now that sounds really exciting and confusing, right? All that means is this, is that when we look at David, who was a king anointed by God and chosen by him to rule over Israel, we're not just supposed to be, see David, we're supposed to see the one that David points to. David points to a true and better king, and I'm guessing that you can guess who that true and better king is. That every time we see David, when we see his failures, we see that our true and better king didn't fail, where David did fail. And every time we see his victories, we're gonna see that that victory, as good as it is, is an incomplete victory that points us to our true and better king, Jesus, who has a victory that is complete and supreme and, and absolutely perfect. And so when we look at David, we're supposed to see the one David points to. That's what we mean when we say typology. Look at this picture of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's a beautiful picture, right? Here's how you can think about typology, like this idea that when we look at David, we're supposed to see our true and better king. David is like this picture of the Grand Canyon. It's pretty impressive. It's a good picture, right? You can get a pretty good idea of what the Grand Canyon looks like from that, but is it the Grand Canyon? How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? I was hoping there would be somebody, all right, because I have not. How many of you would say that doesn't quite get at it? Right? It's a picture. It, it shows you something of it, but it doesn't really capture the essence of the, of the glory that probably when you stood at the Grand Canyon, it took your breath away. And you recognize this is, it's shockingly big. And it's shockingly, stunningly beautiful. And now don't they have the bridge that you can like walk out over? That sounds like a bad idea to me. <laughs> Just a horrible, horrible idea. The edge was good enough for me. That's how you can think about typology, right? Think about it like the picture of the Grand Canyon. It's a great allusion to it. It points you in the right direction. It shows you something that's pretty, pretty stunning, but it's not the true thing. And David is here to point us to the true thing, right? All right, fantastic. Let's look at 1 Samuel then. We're gonna be in chapter 16. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament, so it's kind of back towards the front of the Bible probably about a quarter of the way through the Old Testament. And then let's look together at this story. And here is the first time we encounter David in the scriptures. Now again, we're jumping in midstream here in the book of 1 Samuel. So I'll remind you that Saul, I already alluded to this, Saul was chosen to be king and he has displeased God and because he has displeased God, God has rejected him. 
And that's where we're picking up in our story, where now God is going to choose David, and we're going to see some things in God's choosing of David that are pertinent for us. So look with me. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, who was the prophet at the time, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, so if you're a sibling, that's the ultimate trump card that you could ever get on your brothers. They went through all y'all and then they anointed me. Now here's the, here's the first lesson we learned from David. Here's the first lesson. The king God chooses is not the king the world expects. That's our lesson for today. The king God chooses, the one God puts his authority in and exercises his authority through, is not the king that the world expects. Now, so, you know, just to remind ourselves of the story here, the first thing we see here, the most important phrase really in the whole story is found in verse seven, where it says, God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but he said, God looks at what? God looks at the heart. That's the theme of the whole chapter right there, of the whole story. It's meant to show that. God looks at the heart. And so we're gonna see a couple things here. And the first one is that, is to remind ourselves that when God chooses a king, the king God chooses has everything to do with God examining and seeing the heart of that king. Not the outward appearance, right? Not Eliab who surely, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He's big and handsome and strong. In fact, Saul was chosen for the same reasons. He was taller than everybody else. And everyone assumed this has got to be the king. He's going to look the best in a suit of armor. He's going to be the one that will step off the, you know, he's, he is the all airplane team, as NBA teams say, right? He steps off and he just intimidates the heck out of everybody that sees him. 
He's massive and big and strong. He's the kind of person that we want as our king. David doesn't have any status in his family. So much so that when it was time to gather the sons for the sacrifice, who didn't get invited? They left David behind. They're like, David, you watch the sheep, okay? That's, that's how much David was not considered to be a person of importance amongst his brothers. And that makes sense given the, the, the norms of the day where, you know, the oldest son would have the first portion of the inheritance. The oldest son would be the most important in the family and, and so on and so forth. If you're the youngest of seven or of eight, you really, you've got nothing like there is, no, there is nothing waiting for you. It's all gonna get used up. You are on your own, right? And so David spends his days out with the sheep while his brothers are asked to come to an honored feast where the, the prophet of Israel has come. So, but here's the deal. God says he looks at the heart. And here's what I want you to see from this story. David's heart was shaped not in spite of his lack of status, but because of his lack of status. David's heart was shaped not in spite of the fact that he lacked positional prestige in his family. It was shaped precisely because he lacked it. See, David spent hour after hour after hour out in the middle of flocks of sheep with no one else around. And in that environment, my guess is he learned to pray and sing to God. And the Psalms are the result. He learned to protect the sheep and attack bears and lions who tried to attack the sheep. He learned what God's heart is like because God protects his sheep. Because God will not allow his sheep to be taken. God gets violently angry when someone tries to attack his people and hurt them. And David learned, he had his heart shaped by all those lonesome hours. There's a great book called A Tale of Three Kings. It's a, it's a, it's a short little read. I'd highly encourage you to pick it up. It's by a guy named Gene Edwards. And he writes about what King Saul was like, what King David was like, and we'll see later in David's story, his son Absalom, what he was like as a king. And in that story, he, he uses a little bit of creative imagination, but he imagines what it must have been like for David to be out among the sheep day after day, week after week, in the, in the lonesomeness of that. And the thing I want you to recognize is, do you and I, do we run from the lonesomeness and the statuslessness of the things that will shape our heart to be the kind of heart that God looks at and goes, I'm well pleased with that heart? You see, it was precisely because David had spent hour after hour in a statusless position with no prestige, taking care of dirty, stinky, smelly, disobedient, unruly sheep, precisely because he had done that over and over, day after day. My guess is he learned to sling a stone out there as well. And we're gonna find that's gonna come in handy next week. It's precisely because he he did not look for status. He did not look for position. He did what God gave him to do and he did it well and he did it faithfully and he didn't, he didn't try and shirk that responsibility. Let me tell you, that's easy to talk about here but it's hard to do, right? Have you ever been lonely for a long time and felt like I have more to offer than this and I'm being left in this statusless type of position? Like why wouldn't somebody invite me to the table of leadership? Why doesn't somebody ask me what I think? I've got something to add here. And God says, you, you keep tending the sheep. 
You keep tending the sheep because when Samuel shows up and is gonna anoint the king that I choose, your heart is gonna have been shaped by that in a way that your brother's hearts will not have been shaped because they haven't logged the hours with the sheep that you have logged. You with me, church? So the first thing we see is that God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. So will we follow David's example? Will we follow his example and gladly embrace statuslessness? if you will. But now let's ask, if that's David's example for us, to embrace that kind of a reality so that our hearts get shaped, so that when God looks at our hearts, how does that point us to Jesus? Well, remember that what he says here in 1 Samuel, what God says here in 1 Samuel, God does not look at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. When we see that David's heart is shaped by God, we see that he is the king that God chooses. But we know that David's heart points us to the heart of one much better. Because listen to what Isaiah chapter 52 says about, or 53, sorry, chapter 53, verse two and three about our savior Jesus. It says, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, the world does not love Jesus because Jesus does not represent what the world thinks about when it thinks about power. Jesus does not represent the tallest or the most handsome or or the strongest physically. He had no earthly form that we should be drawn to him. There was nothing about our Savior when he walked on the earth that caused men to want to follow him because, man, he looks like a king. Do you know why men followed him? because he had a heart that was like God's heart. Because God shaped, God was well pleased with Jesus' heart above all other hearts that have ever walked the face of the earth. Because he fully represented everything that was in God's heart. He was well pleased to be in a statusless position, to have no home to lay his head, to be despised and rejected, to be called a man of sorrows. And if you're with us today and you are wondering why we choose to follow Jesus, we recognize that from an earthly perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He was not one that the world would look at and say, he's one to be followed, which by the way, is one of the reasons you should consider following him because millions of people have chosen to follow this one who had no status, who had no reputation, who had no authority in an earthly sense. And yet, he was the chosen one of God because his heart perfectly represented God's. So when we look at David, we see our true and better king. You, you follow me? Whose heart is right. And we're, that's gonna be really meaningful for us in just a moment. But let's look at the next thing we see. So to, to say that God's king is not what the world expects is not to say that God doesn't mark his king so that he can be seen. So it's not to say that we'll always miss the one that God uh, calls to be king because God does two things in this story to make it evident that he has in fact chosen David. And those two things are that he anoints him and he empowers him. He anoints him and he empowers him. And let's look at that and let's see what we can learn from the example of David then in this text. So you may have noticed that at the beginning, God says to Samuel, he says, 
Stop grieving over Saul and take your horn with your anointing oil and go and anoint the one that I will show you. So he's gonna go and anoint him. Now, this is a relatively new practice in the nation of Israel. The only time this has transpired before is that there's been an anointing of Saul to be king, but that was done in a private place. So we're not even sure that anyone other than Saul and Samuel knew what this anointing meant. There's a very good chance that at the end of the story, when Samuel anoints David, that David knows it means he's chosen, but he doesn't know what he's chosen for. And this is gonna bear itself out because he's gonna go and serve Saul in Saul's own palace, and you never get the sense that David knows that he's the next king. Maybe he does, but there's a good chance it would seem that he does not know what this anointing is for, but he is anointed. And what he knows that means is that he's chosen by God for something. To be anointed is to be chosen by God for something. So David knows that, but perhaps not what that something is for. Now think about what that means for you and I. How often have you felt that God has chosen you for something, but you don't know what that thing is? And you're just trying, like, God, what is it? Just show me. And he's saying, be patient. Be pa- walk with me and be patient. I will, I will show you. To be anointed is not always to know what you are anointed for, what you are chosen for. Now, this is the way God does it often with leaders. This is how he chooses them. His anointing is on them, but that anointing doesn't always make it obvious what they're anointed for. So here is a couple ways that he, God often reveals his anointing. I'll give you two things that often reveal that God's hand is on somebody. That's really what we mean, that God's hand of favor is on someone. Two things that typically mark throughout Scripture and honestly just throughout practice in walking with Christ that mark the anointed of God is that they are successful in small tasks. They are successful in small tasks. And with that, I mean they don't have a sense of entitlement that they should be given larger tasks. They are successful in small tasks. And the second is they have a heart that is uniquely given to the things of God. We already talked about the heart. But if you want to know if God's favor, his anointing, his chosenness rests upon you for certain tasks, one of the things that you will find is that as you think about those tasks, you find that you think about them in a way that it seems like others around you don't think about them. And I don't just mean that you have unique insight or that you have you know, a unique sort of wisdom about those things or you're more intelligent than the others around you. I don't mean any of that. What I mean is that you have this unique sense of like, it doesn't seem like anyone else is asking the question, what does God want in this situation? But I can't evade that question. I just can't stop asking that question. I can't help but, but be preoccupied. My mind is constantly preoccupied with what does God want and how would God act in this situation? What would he have me do? That there seems to be a way in which the person who's anointed and chosen by God seems to be consumed with that type of thinking. I heard a, a, just a very bottom line example of this this week. A friend of mine was talking about a friend of ours named Greg Lesher who has moved to Lancaster, but he used to go to church here with us. And and Greg practices business. I don't know him that well, but my friend said this. He said, it's amazing how often Greg runs a business. He's an entrepreneur. It's amazing how often when I talk to other business people and they're putting Christian principles into practice in their business, that I say, hey, what made you think to do that? And they're like, well, have you ever met a guy named Greg Lesher? Because he kind of like remind he show he does this and he showed me how to do it and he just and 
the second I heard that, I thought that's a great example of Greg being just preoccupied with how do I run a business in a way that honors God? And then I'm gonna just share that with people and share that with people and share that with people and share that with people. And as he's done that, he has forged a reputation as one whose heart is preoccupied with the things of God. And in his work, in his place where he's, I mean, and that's a place where so many of us, guys in particular, right, that we sort of think, you know, does my faith have anything to say about the way I run my business? And it feels like those two worlds are disjointed. Greg's a great example for us that they, those two worlds are meant to coexist and commingle and to be well mixed together, right? So I thought about that this week when I thought about that. What a great indicator of God's anointing in his favor. So faithfulness in small tasks is an indicator of God's anointing, his, his chosenness or our chosenness in him. And then also just a heart that's uniquely preoccupied with the things of God. Now, when we think about that, all right, here's the thing I want you to know. It will always become clear in time what the anointing is for. Can I give you that and just like rest in that? It will become clear in time what your anointing, what your chosenness is for. The anointed is not concerned with rising to the title that fits their anointing. They are concerned with applying their anointing to the task in front of them. You, you get it? The anointed is not concerned with rising to the position that their anointing seems to deserve. They are concerned with how to apply that anointing to the task in front of them today. That's what I mean when I say faithfulness in small tasks marks the anointed. Now, here's the other thing. This anointing that David is experiencing is really important. And do you know why it's really important? Because one of the themes that we're gonna see throughout David's life is that he's very, very concerned to make sure that everyone knows that he's not gonna become king because he has selfish ambition and he wants to overthrow Saul. He wants to make sure that everyone sees and knows that it's God who's anointed and chosen him. Over time, he comes to understand, this is what I am anointed to do, to be king. But he refuses to ever raise his hand against Saul or push Saul out of the way or off the throne. He says, I won't do that. And I want to make clear everyone knows that I didn't do that. But it's the anointing that enables David. This moment right here is going to become so pivotal because there are going to be some wilderness years for David. There are gonna come some times where it would be so easy for David to go, there's no way God has chosen me. There's no way. There's just no way. I'm living in a cave with a bunch of crazies around me. Like, this is the worst of the worst of the worst. Clearly, whoever thought I should be king was, was nuts. It's gonna be really easy for David to believe that. And do you know that he's gonna go back to this moment? He's gonna remember this moment that there's an anointing on him that cannot be denied. And he doesn't have to do, he doesn't have to, ambition is not the thing that's gonna get him to the throne. In fact, ambition would keep him from getting to the throne. He's not gonna get to the throne through ambition. He's gonna get there by the hand of God. And this anointing, remembering, remembering that we're chosen, remembering that we're anointed. We're gonna come back to that. David points us to Jesus here because in the same way David is anointed with oil, do you remember Jesus at his baptism by John the Baptist? He goes under the water and he comes up. And if you know the story, what happens to Jesus at his baptism? This is Jesus' anointing, right? This is Jesus, it's the declaration that he is the chosen one. And if you remember, a dove descends out of the heavens and it's the Holy Spirit and it sits upon him, it rests upon him. And then, awesome moment by the way, 
God speaks audibly, and what does he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If that's not an anointing, I don't know what is. It's not an anointing with oil, but it's an anointing with the Spirit of God to declare, this is my chosen one. And so when we see David's anointing as the king, we're meant to see the anointing of our Savior, who was truly chosen by God above all other men who ever walked the earth. He is the chosen one. Now let's go to the last piece of this text, of this story, and let's look at it. And we see that God doesn't just anoint his king, he also gives power to his king. He empowers his king. Now there's this great Old Testament phrase. We don't see it in the New Testament, but we do see it in the Old, where it says, David was anointed, and then do you remember what happened next? It says, the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. So it's a common phrase in the Old Testament, but it's also unique. And here's the common phrase is the Spirit of God rushed upon him. We see that with Samson. We see it with Gideon. We see it with many Old Testament figures that the Spirit in the Old Testament didn't necessarily indwell all the people of God, live inside of them as he does us now who have faith in Christ. But he did rush upon them to do certain things. So in Samson's case, to rise up and overthrow oppression for the, for the nation of Israel, God rushes upon Samson and he accomplishes a mighty military victory, right? Same thing for Gideon. The Spirit rushes upon him. He accomplishes a mighty military victory. Same thing here, David. The Spirit rushes upon him, but then the uniqueness of David is that it says, from that day forward. In other words, David was unique amongst Old Testament characters because the Spirit of God remains on him and remains rushing upon him in a way that wasn't just momentary for a big battle, but that David has some experience of the Spirit of God that seems to be unique among the people of the Old Testament. There are a few other people in the Old Testament that seem to have a similar experience, but David, among them all, seems to be relatively unique in that the Spirit rushes upon him. Now, here's the deal. Just David is our example, right? The thing we can know is that when God anoints you and chooses you to give you some authority, he will also empower you. He will also empower you to exercise that authority. He will not, church, hear me, he will not leave you without what you need to do the thing he's called you to do. And it is normal practice for God, by the way, let me say this, it's normal practice for God to choose you for something that will stretch you so much that you will pretty quickly recognize, I don't think I have the power for this. I, I don't have what I need to do this. And it's when you recognize that, that the Spirit of God then rushes upon you, that the Spirit comes in and goes, aha, they found the secret ingredient, which is that they put their hands up and went, I can't do this. And the Spirit of God enter, now comes through his indwelling in our being and says, now, here comes the power. Here comes the power, you need to do it. Because I was really waiting for you to recognize that you didn't have it, so that you didn't think it was you. And now that you've recognized that, here it comes, and now you'll know it's me. But he will not leave you without the power that you need to walk in the anointing he has given you. I think that's really important. And he didn't have to. Look, all the other places where the Spirit of God rushes upon someone in the Old Testament, they immediately, they go out and they do something with that power, right? What does David do next? Nothing. Nothing. The next, okay, we're gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna kill Dan because Dan's preaching next week and I'm gonna steal some of his text here, all right? 
The next thing that happens is he's at home and his brothers are off at war. And he's gonna take them snacks. That's the next thing David gets to do. He's gonna take them some snacks. You would think the Spirit of God rushes upon him and all of a sudden, big thing happens. Nope. Spirit of God rushes upon him, rests upon him. David goes back to the sheep. And then David gets to be the snack carrier, okay? Like if you work an awesome adventure and you're serving the goldfish, you're like David, right? You are awesome. And the Spirit of God has rushed upon you to do that. So I, I want you to learn to assume that the empowerment will be given, okay? To assume that the empowerment will be given. Now again, we look to how does David point us to our true and better king, right? In his anointing, we see the anointing of our true and better king, Jesus. In his heart, we see the one who had the true heart that was pleasing to God. And in his, in his empowerment in the spirit, think through the gospels with me. In fact, the gospel of John says it recorded all these miracles that Jesus did so that you would believe that he was the son of God. That, that's the gospel of John. The whole reason it exists is to say, look at all these things that Jesus did that are so magnificent. All the things he taught, all the things he did, the miracles. And if, if David receives a, an, an an empowerment from the Spirit to do all the things that we're gonna watch him do, how much more has our true and better king received a perfect empowerment of the Spirit to heal the sick, preach the gospel, raise the dead, and ultimately be resurrected himself from the dead because he is the one in whom the Spirit dwells perfectly. There is no separation between him and the Spirit of God. They are one because he is God in the flesh. David, when we see his anointing, we see our king's anointing. When we see... David's empowerment from the Spirit, we are meant to see the one who truly possesses all the power of the Spirit and be pointed to him. Now, we've seen David's example. We've seen how he points to Jesus. So let's close up shop with this then, kind of conclusion moment now. How do I follow David's example, right? You say, God looks at the heart. I need to have a right heart, right? How do I follow it? How do I do that? How do I acquire that right heart? You said that God anoints. Like, How do I walk in in my anointing, believe that it's there? How do I follow David's example in that? How do I follow David's example in his empowerment to do that work? How do I do that? Well, one, let's go back to what we said at the very beginning. You need to remember that when you read the story of David, you're not supposed to read it as, wow, what an amazing king. I could never be what he is. You're actually meant to read it and say, if David can be this, then I can be that. Because what? He, he, there was nothing about him that caused him to be chosen. He wasn't, he wasn't the king God chose because of his power or his might or his wisdom or anything else. He was simply the one God chose because he had a heart like his, right? The world doesn't expect that, but the people of God know that's who God chooses. Now, look at our Savior and recognize this. He is uniquely, he is uniquely, get, has, he uniquely has the heart of God. He is uniquely anointed and chosen and he is uniquely empowered. And yet, he, dwelling in us, shares those things with us. He is the one. You want to be like David? Recognize the one David points to is able to shape your heart to be the way it needs to be. He doesn't just operate on us from the outside. He operates on us from the inside. And he, he can actually make your heart different than how it is today. If there's bitterness or anger or sadness or whatever it is that keeps you from acquiring the heart of God, Jesus is able to do something about that. David can't. David's example is good, but it can't change your heart. But the one David points to can absolutely transform your heart as you behold him. 
And not only that, but the one David points to shares his anointing with you. He was chosen by God, and now, through faith in him, we are what, according to Ephesians? We are chosen. We are chosen by God because of Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus. We are chosen by him. He has shared his anointing, his status as the chosen one of God. He shared it with you. Now that should give you pause for a moment. Me? Yes, you. If you are in Christ through faith, you are a chosen one of God because our Savior shares his chosenness with you. And then finally, not only does he share his anointing, not only is he able to transform your heart, the one David points to is able to empower you through putting his spirit inside of you in a way that goes well beyond the, how David was ever empowered. Do you know that the spirit of God rushing upon David and all that we're gonna see that he's gonna do with that empowerment, you have a deeper, more indwelling power in you because the spirit of God lives in you permanently because of the blood of Jesus. It's yours. So don't read David and go, wow. Wow, like next week we're gonna see him face Goliath and you're gonna probably go, wow, what faith, what courage. Do you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go, oh, I've been given more power than he ever had. Because I live on this side of the cross and the one who possesses all power has shared his power with me, has chosen to let it move through me and in me. So church family, remember, look, the king God chooses is not the king the world expects. Is not the king the world expects. But the king that we now know as king shares with you his power, places upon you his anointing, and is able to shape your heart. Be confident in those things. What a joy it is to be reminded of them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. You are good and mighty and strong. You are our true and better king. We're excited to learn from your servant, David. We are thankful for how he honored you, how he had a heart like your heart. And we pray that you'd shape us, not just in his image, but in yours, because he points to you. So help us, shape us. I, I pray that we wouldn't resist you, Holy Spirit, in any way. We love you. Receive our songs now. We're gonna sing to you, Lord. Would you receive them? from our mouths, let them come from our heart and just usher forth as people who are grateful and filled with faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.